From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. On today's program, we're listening to our global town hall recorded earlier this month at the Green Space at WNYC and in conjunction with our partners at NPR Berlin and in Cairo, Egypt. We turn now to our host, Todd Zwillick, Washington correspondent for our partner PRI program, The Takeaway. Let's meet our panelists and get things going. Joining me on the far end is Michael Oppenheimer. He's professor of international relations and political economy at New York University Center for Global Affairs. His latest book is titled Pivotal Countries, Alternate Futures Using Scenarios to Manage American Strategy. Michael Oppenheimer, welcome. Great to have you. And we're also very lucky to have somebody who's been a frequent guest on our show on The Takeaway, Nina Khrushcheva. She's professor of international affairs at the New School, where she teaches about propaganda. She's also authored a lot of books, including The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind. Nina, welcome. Finally, right here to my left is Michael Powell. He's Global Operations Risk Manager at the Economist Intelligence Unit. He specializes in analyzing the Middle East and Africa, as well as macroeconomic policy and the energy sector. Welcome to you. So um, earlier this month, we asked our community of listeners from all around the world to submit questions for this program. We have a question now that comes all the way from Somalia that's going to help kick off this discussion about how the rest of the world is viewing this election and where American foreign policy might go in ways that affect them and in ways that affect us too as we deal with the rest of the world. So let's go to that. My name is Daoud Hassan. I'm 26 years old. I was born in Somalia. Ever since I was born, I did not see an effective central government in my country. So my question to the U.S. presidential candidates is, since my country, Somalia, has been affected by civil wars and terrorism, what are your plans for Somalia to get back on its feet? Michael Oppenheimer, I'm going to start with you on the end. I'm not sure that Somalia has come up in this election necessarily. We may not know how the candidates view that country specifically. But Daoud's concerns go directly toward a question that's lingering behind this election, which is American interventionism and dealing with terror. Those are two issues that affect Daoud's country directly. So start us off with sort of a brief look at how these two candidates might be looking at that issue. It's the perfect question to enable us to understand the deep differences between these two candidates on these questions. Uh, Hillary Clinton has a history of liberal interventionism. She lost the argument during her position as Secretary of State during the Obama administration on the subject of intervening in Syria. She was in favor of it. Obama opposed it. She lost that fight. She left the administration. But I think she's essentially a sort of an unreconstructed liberal interventionist and, and as such would have at least emotionally an attachment, uh, a feeling of sympathy to countries like Somalia that find themselves in deep civil conflict. Now, whether that appetite for intervention would be curbed during her administration, let's just hypothesize that she wins this election, whether it would be curbed by the, by the country's lack of appetite for intervention, or by budget pressures, or by the lessons that she should have learned uh, over the last decade or so with respect to how difficult it is to intervene and build nations and so forth. That's an open question. But she certainly would be more inclined than Donald Trump to take conditions in Somalia seriously 
and to see them partly as a threat because it's in failed states that terrorism finds opportunities to act, but also in, in a more kind of a humanitarian sense, a sense of responsibility as an exceptional country to improve conditions in the world. Donald Trump is the opposite pole, really. He's a, a neo-isolationist, an American firster. Not that he dismisses terrorism, but his solution to terrorism is not to go abroad seeking dragons to slay, but close the borders to tighten up on homeland security and you know, leave the Somalis of the world to sink or swim. Robert Powell, do you agree with that? There is an old debate among Democrats. Samantha Power is one that always gets pointed to. The old liberal Democrats who say the United States should use its formidable military might to exercise right in the world. We should have intervened in Rwanda. It was good that we intervened in Kosovo. Is that who Hillary is? Yeah, I mean, there are two good examples, and Kosovo is an example where actually interventionism went relatively well. The problem is, is a liberal interventionism without nation-building seems to often be aimed at the solving the conscience of a home audience rather than necessarily actually treating the severe problems in that particular country where you're intervening, in this case, Somalia. And what you've found under Obama is ready deployment of, of course, drones and so forth to deal with the terrorism issue, but he's sort of recognised that nation-building is off the table. And I think this is something uh, that Hillary probably would recognise as well. It's a very expensive gap between interventionism and nation-building, and who knows, she may have learned the lesson from Libya or not, but I presume so, that if you don't concentrate sufficiently on the kind of post-war order, then it's just going to sink back to where it was before. But yeah, the Somalia instances are very interesting one. Yemen, you know, these failed states are something that's going to persist. And I guess the one that's really in the headlines is Syria. And that's an example where sort of an interventionist approach, which is to an extent, which was Obama's idea that you bomb ISIS and you stand back from the war, has done absolutely nothing for Syria and actually handed the, the momentum to someone else. In this particular instance, Russia, and to an extent, Iran. And this is where Trump has had some useful... Um, ammunition when he when he wears his hat say make America great again actually in terms of foreign policy uh, when you see the U.S. very much a policy follower not a policy leader within the Middle East which is an area where the U.S. is supposed to be you know, dominant um, you see that something has gone a little bit awry so that's that's a tough tough uh, problem for Hillary to fix. Nina Khrushcheva, this is a perfect place to bring you in because we got to Libya and we got to Syria rather quickly now. You're an absolute expert on Russia, and one of the criticisms of Lead from Behind, which is President Obama's self-avowed, even though he doesn't like the phrase, his self-avowed policy, which will be passed on in some form to the next president, is that especially in Syria, Lead from Behind, the American weariness for interventionism after the experience in Iraq and Afghanistan has opened the door to adventurism and muscle flexing from Vladimir Putin. Well, generally, I think when the United States does try to rely on others to solve its problems, for example, Michael mentioned the intervention in Syria, the red line, we'll remember in 2013 there were pronouncements that the United States is not going to stand the chemical weapons used by Assad, and then it was sort of contracted off to Putin to solve it out. So that in this sense, the next U.S. president should understand when the vacuum is created in that kind of leadership, somebody is going to step in, and very likely Vladimir Putin will step in because he does have the idea that 
uh, whatever the United States can do, there is absolutely no reason why Russia can't. That America's idea that it's the leader of the world, look at the hypocrisy of it, look at the Iraq invasion, look at the NSA spying, look at all these other things. So when America says we are the moral leader of the world, Russia says, or Putin says, you are not, and I am as capable of acting as possible. And then it becomes, he said, she said, and I think, but I think what sort of going back to Somalia a little bit is that I think the danger with Trump, although there's always a conversation how convenient Trump is, must be to Putin, that we actually don't know what Trump is going to do at all, because he does seem to listen to whoever comes next. I mean, he's going to be Trump, but whether it's going to be Trump uh, the warmonger or the Trump, the, the nationalist, we still don't know because he can easily go and attack the world, which is really doesn't vote for Somalia or any other country for that matter. Yeah, and I think Syria is kind of exhibit A for them because some of his policies were, you know, it's relatively isolationist, um, you close foreign military bases, and it's actually a strong economic argument because military bases abroad are fantastically expensive to maintain and just deploying a troop abroad costs about four times as much as just keeping them within the United States. And yet, in the same breath almost, he said he wanted to invade Syria, steal the oil, which didn't sound particularly legal to me, uh, to pay for the invasion. And he would, you know, take care of it one way or another by having troops on the ground, which is a fantastically expensive um, idea. I did, I did some numbers and worked out that basically any even vaguely short-term invasion and to hold a piece of territory within Syria will cost, in the region of like $40, $50 billion dollars. The amount of oil, if the U.S. was to steal the oil, would... Syria's not a big producer. It would bring in a few hundred million dollars. That's going to leave kind of a wall-sized gap in the budget, perhaps. says it just speaks very much of what you're saying, that his policy pronouncements in terms of dealing with terrorism actually involve a lot more intervention, while in the same breath he's saying the U.S. shouldn't be getting involved in other people's wars. this, This is a good time. We have some partners in Egypt, and I want to go to them for a question, because there was a time, and it wasn't all that long ago, when the United States and Russia uh, were battling for influence in places like Egypt. But this discussion of U.S. interventionism and terrorism is right in your backyard, Egypt, and, and I know that you guys think this through a lot. So why don't you go ahead? Yes, we have a lot of concerns about terrorism, but this question can take days to answer because we have so many conflicts with the United States in the issue of terrorism. I'll give you a very quick example. The Muslim Brotherhood um, are supported by the Obama administration and has been supported since since they started power. Uh, We consider the Muslim Brotherhood to be a terrorist organization. This is our main concern about it. And we feel that the United States policy in the past few years have been to support this regime or system which really in one year brought down our country to its knees when they took over. So we're not sure that we have the same definition of terrorism as you do. Michael Oppenheimer, there has been a tacit understanding to the extent that the Obama administration has been tolerant of the Muslim Brotherhood, I think, that they are Islamist but not Islamic radical, that they're not a terrorist organization in the American definition I think certainly in Cairo's definition here with our partners, they may be. Uh, But this has been a a calculation on the part of the Obama administration to find partners deep within the Middle East community and even among the Islamist community, some in Turkey, some in Egypt. Is is that a correct read, do you think? And is that something that would continue under either of these candidates? 
Well, I, I think it's a correct read historically. Will it continue? That's a very precise prediction that I'm not prepared to make. Uh, I think, you know, the, the Middle East is bifurcating. There's a deep Sunni-Shia divide within states and now increasingly between states. Uh, the United States is on record as supporting the current government in Cairo, as well as other states that are attempting to contain Iranian influence. And so I, th- I think the trend in terms of American policy in the Middle East is, is going to be increasingly towards supporting regimes that are prepared to defend and support American interests towards stability, towards containing Iran, if not formally coalescing with Israel, at least implicitly acting uh, in joint terms with Israel. Um, But we've been talking a lot about the specific positions of different candidates on different issues. And there is a question that kind of transcends the specific policy positions. In Hillary Clinton's case, these positions are well thought out. Uh, she has a long history of being involved in foreign policy. She's an authoritative figure as Secretary of State. Trump is a completely different animal. And the concern that I think people from Israel to Somalia to Russia to Germany, et cetera, ought to be having is, in fact, the same concern that many of us has, is, is whether we are seriously considering, as an American president, someone with a personality disorder. Uh, and what that means in terms of uh, not his formal positions, because his formal positions are skin deep. I mean, he, he, he tells one story in Mexico City, the next day he tells a different story in Phoenix. And so it's the combination of a prospect of a president leading the most powerful country in the world with an impulsive personality and the inevitable crises that will arise, because they arise all the time whether it's 9-11 or whether it's uh, the war in Syria, and how he will react in those circumstances. So what, what, I'm, what I'm raising is, is something that all of us need to be worried about, and that's the, the question of sort of basic competence and basic leadership. Uh, it's not a policy question. It's, it's, a, it's a competence question. But, but you know, I mean, the world, the world doesn't have a vote. I mean, that's unfair because this vote uh, is hugely consequential. So this is big for everybody. This is a great time for us to go to Germany, I think. We have Martin Klingst with us, I believe. There he is. Hi, Martin. Martin is senior political correspondent for the German newspaper Die Zeit. And Martin, there has been concern that we're already aware of in Europe about what a Trump presidency might mean. How do you view it? If you take literally what he has said, you know, he said he gets very well along with Putin, two big guys, you know, fighting on the same side, two guys that have very autocratic tendencies. Also, Trump said that he will accept the annexation of Crimea. And then he also put into question Article 5 of NATO. That means, you know, if one is attacked, you know, everyone is attacked. And uh, which is then the the mutual response is is, is solidarity. And if he puts this into question, uh, he will put the whole concept of Western society into question. And um, I think, you know, it's a hard thing to deal with, you know. And, And he also came to Europe the last time when he landed in Scotland, not knowing where he was. But uh, anyways, he said, um, OK, congratulations to the Brexit vote. I mean, you know, this was actually something that continental Europe really astonished and, and, and also some of the islands like Ireland. Uh, so I think he, he is actually, you know, putting on the fire and it's something you really have to be worried about. 
Martin, um, one more question for Germany, because I, I do want to keep on the issue of terrorism while we talk about economy, which is also important. Germany is a country, of course, that has seen a huge influx in immigration. It has also seen a reaction on the right politically. This is very similar to countries like France have had its uh, own immigration debate, is putting it lightly, and certainly clashes with terrorism lately. How are Germans, if there's, a, if there's one answer for this, viewing the differences they might get with a Hillary Clinton presidency versus a Donald Trump presidency, what this means for their domestic concerns with terrorism, immigration, and their, and their place in dealing with the Middle East? Well, concerning terrorism, well, the only thing that you know is that there are very good contacts between the German government and, uh, and the Clintons. And they know, have known each other for a long uh, time, so they know, you know, how Clinton thinks. I, I mean, your cooperation on terrorism is very necessary and very important, you know, despite all the challenges and disputes that we had about data sharing and common communication. But I would also think that probably Donald Trump would co cooperate on this issue. Um, you know, the refugee question is, is a very hot issue here. And you're totally right that there's a right-wing party that is emerging and it's gaining votes and it's entering local parliaments. It will probably also enter the, the national parliament next year when we have general elections. So this is a tendency that you see all over Europe, and you could, you know, draw parallels from Europe to the United States. You know, some things that Trump says are very similar to, to things you hear from the right-winger parties in France, in Great Britain, in, in Austria, in the Netherlands, in Scandinavia, and in Germany. Robert, um, the rise of the nationalist right in Europe, uh, I'm not sure exactly how high that rise has gone, but it's certainly higher than it would have been five years ago. This causes a recalculation among prime ministers, generals, uh, people gauging their domestic political climate before they make an intervention, before they go into a country, before they go after terrorists or whether they decide to, to pull in. And this, this has a great deal to do with how far a country is willing to go to combat terrorism. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a huge policy headache for Europe. And this is a time where the European Union is anything more fractured than it's previously been, not just the UK but actually because of the rise of these populist groups, many of which have been around a long time, such as Haider in Austria and so forth, um, but also generally actually a little more politically uh, sophisticated uh, than Trump. So you think of Marine Le Pen, or even Farage in the UK, who spends most of his time drinking pints of beer, but actually has a pretty good shtick, often better than Trump. But they do share this kind of policy agenda, which is very, very appealing superficially, the idea of free trade, working with other countries, intervening in other countries, while it's harmed people back home, free trade only helps foreign countries, and as such, why not give the money, why not concentrate on people at home? And it's working in the European environment in this kind of anti-EU and anti-immigration voice that has an echo with kind of the anti-Mexican and anti-free trade voice you have in the US. So if, in many ways, if you want to kind of watch kind of the political discourse in the US, you wouldn't be uh, too far mistaken to kind of start with the European Union. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about trade in the global economy, and I have a feeling that that discussion is also going to include a lot of talk on immigration. You're listening to U.S. Foreign Policy and the Next President Through the Eyes of the World on America Abroad. That's Todd Zwillick, Washington correspondent for The Takeaway, hosting our global town hall discussion, which we recorded earlier this month. 
If you want to weigh in on this conversation online, join us on Facebook or find us at PRI.org. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. On today's program, we're listening to our Global Town Hall, recorded earlier this month at the Green Space at WNYC, in conjunction with our partners at NPR Berlin and in Cairo, Egypt. Our panelists include Robert Powell, Global Risk Manager for the Economist Intelligence Unit, NYU Professor Michael Oppenheimer, and Nina Khrushcheva, International Affairs Professor and Associate Dean of the Milano School of International Affairs at the New School. We turn back now to our host, Todd Zwillick, Washington correspondent for our partner PRI program, The Takeaway. Welcome back to U.S. Foreign Policy and the Next President Through the Eyes of the World. I'm your host, Todd Zwillick, Washington correspondent for The Takeaway. Hello to again to our audiences in Cairo, in Germany, and you here in New York. Now, we've got lots of question and points of view coming in from all over the world. So we have uh, another question that comes to us from one of our viewers overseas, I believe from Colombia. So let's start there. My name is Daniel Castellanos, and I would like to ask the presidential candidates in the United States whether they think the United States have a responsibility promoting economic development in the region. And if so, what is the best uh, tool to promote economic development in the region? Robert Powell, I haven't heard the candidates directly talk about economic development in Colombia. However, it was an agenda item when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State for sure. Now, Donald Trump, in the aftermath of his immigration discussions, has actually said that he intends to bring jobs into the hemisphere, keep jobs in the hemisphere. He didn't actually say the United States. Maybe Colombians can feel heartened by that (laughs) if the new president will worry about their jobs as well. The hemisphere might just be his ego. It could be anything. It could be any size. Um, I mean, Colombia has a free trade agreement uh, with the U.S. I doubt that will be rescinded anytime soon. And it's, it's a slightly difficult question to define because the U.S. has a responsibility for economic development. Maybe it's talking about the TPP. You know, there's this um, free trade deal that would involve Pacific-facing countries, 12 countries altogether, Egypt and Latin America as well. Uh, the U.S. was relatively, um, relatively energetic in leading those discussions. It's all been agreed but it ain't been enacted yet. You know, this thing is not in force. And it might be, um, if you're at least a free trader within Latin America, you would strongly, strongly um, support this particular deal. But it's highly unlikely to happen under a Trump presidency. In fact, it's almost impossible to happen under a Trump presidency, which is unfortunate. Because if you are trying to, say, promote Latin American trade, you know, this is a region that did very, very well during the commodity boom. Um, China particularly was... We had a super cycle led by China. Um, so everything from oil to soybeans, uh, the price went through the roof. Uh, now these countries, it's not wildly dissimilar to the Middle East, but they need to diversify their economies considerably, and trade will do that. However, if this trade deal is lost and rather slips down the, the drain, then uh, they will lose that opportunity, and that will be kind of U.S. policy indirectly harming them. But I don't think anyway, the U.S. on its own could, say, rescue Brazil or something along those lines. So the, whether it has a responsibility to, um, to help lift their economies is kind of irrelevant. It's kind of can the U.S. And one of the few levers it has are these free trade deals where the U.S. can, on their behalf, um, assist them in negotiations with Asian states and so forth. And that ain't going to happen under a Trump presidency. But it might happen under a Hillary presidency, whatever Hillary Clinton might say. 
she's come out saying, oh, no, she's like sceptical about this deal now, having said it was the gold standards before. But I think she would probably, to revert to her previous policy, would make some minor tweaks and in the end push it through. Um, but that's one of those things we'll have to wait and see. Well, I have talked to many Asian experts in Washington, diplomats and otherwise, who try to put their taster in the Chinese attitude, for instance, on Donald Trump. And they, many of them come away with a similar conclusion, which is he's bombastic, he's unpredictable, but they appreciate the American businessman who likes the big deal. There's some things about him that are unpredictable, but we speak the same language. Donald Trump speaks business, he speaks money, and we like that, and we can, we can handle him in a trade negotiation. That's their read of it. Hillary Clinton they see as the Iron Lady, who won't back down and is more problematic for them, especially after you know going at the Chinese 20 years ago in Beijing on women's rights. They don't like that. So I, I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I mean, they might like him because he sources so many of his goods from China. And if he's such a good negotiator, he wouldn't have gone bankrupt four times. And, but the thing is about trade negotiations, and Michael absolutely touched upon this, is it's a give and take, but my God, they're tedious. The, the details are mind-numbing. You know, everything from rice to shoelaces will be negotiated. And this is, as Michael says, he's a big-picture guy. He likes to go with his gut. There's no way he would ever not only be able to but have any interest in dealing with these kind of negotiations which go on you know, well into the night for months and months, typically years and years, and involve the absolute minutiae of regulation, exports, imports, controls, capital controls, current account controls services, I mean, matching goods, I mean, everything you can think of. It's way, way, way beyond anything he's done before and it's way beyond anything he's shown any interest in before. So I just don't think it's a feasible argument. I don't think it's a realistic argument. And I think it's actually a concern that the Chinese think that they can deal with him because it probably thinks they can get their own way with him. But can I just yeah. sort of add to some, something? I mean, I think that um, he's a useful fool to all these countries who... Oh, he is. He she's just does what they these countries may see as something is the, really the end of American power, and uh, that's why the Chinese and the Russians. Uh, I think that the Chinese. I think it's twenty five percent supporting uh, Trump election for the Russians is thirty one percent. Not because they're particularly loving him, although they do love gold. He loves gold, so it's all good. <laughs> but at the same time, it's just it's just an incredibly useful, bombastic guy that they think that can be bought because he talks about the art of the deal and he can be flattered and he's very easily susceptible to that. I, I do want to make sure that our discussion on, on trade and the economy does include I immigration. So I'm going, to move, I'm going to move from that just for a moment to the major debate we're having on immigration in this country, which has a direct impact, of course, on Mexico. We had a question from Colombia, all of Latin America. In fact, Donald Trump in his recent pronouncements sort of de-emphasized Mexico a little bit and said, you know, there are people coming from all over Latin America which is, which is certainly true. Um, one thing that has been pointed out to me by other people in the construction business, like Donald Trump, is that he is someone who must understand, who does understand the value of inexpensive labor, that he uses immigrant labor on his projects, he knows that other people in his business need it, and that regardless of his pronouncements on who has to stay and who has to go, People in the business think eventually Donald Trump is the type of Chamber of Commerce businessman who does understand the need for cheap labor. Now, this election has a very different strain. There are millions of Americans, as we've seen, who've had their anxieties about their place in the economy and their anxieties culturally. This is not all about economic anxiety, also cultural anxiety. 
racial anxiety challenged, and it's aided the rise of Trump. This gets tied in with attitudes over immigration. We've seen that um, we've seen that in Europe as well. So let's go down the line here just briefly, and I'm going to start here with you, Robert Powell, and then we'll go down, and we'll keep it relatively brief. But I want to make sure we have a rich little discussion here on immigration and the economic strains that have run across the border between U.S. and Latin America and how the next president, given this political climate, is going to be able to solve this. Yeah, it's, um, first of all, we've gone through an extraordinarily traumatic economic recession there was going to be some kind of political consequence. Obviously, the most, like, the most um, dramatic example is the, great, um, the Wall Street crash, the Great Depression, 1930s and so forth, rise of fascism in Europe. There was always going to be some kind of reaction after the Great Recession that we had from 2008 and so on. And this might be it. Now, the immigration argument in terms of how any president's going to deal with it, I don't think actually Trump would do much at all. It's all talk, as you say, quite like uh, cheap labor, but just realistically, there's not a huge amount you can do. The U.S., in terms of Mexico, is a net emigrant. More people leave the U.S. to move to Mexico than are actually coming in. So it's, it's not, there's no actual factual case that this country is being overrun by illegal immigrants. It's just not true. Nina, you're an expert on propaganda. Um, <laughs> you are. And immigration, is, a, immigration is, <laughs> is an issue in this country that, that I've noticed has lended itself very effectively to propagandistic strategies when it comes to communication. Exactly. And that's, that's what my, uh, my two cents on this is that, once again, we have no idea what Donald Trump does. And I think your point is well taken, is that maybe when he becomes president, there will be floodgate of everybody come in and become cheap labor and you know, have your American dream. We, we don't know, but it is great rhetoric to use. But as for Hillary Clinton, I think it is going to be kind of following Obama policies. It's not open borders, but there's certainly much more sort of, as you talk about liberal interventionism, there's a, a liberal approach to America is a land of opportunity, and therefore we have to uh, make sure that it's, the system is reformed, but also the people who want to come here would, would have that opportunity. Um, I, Michael, I promised to give you a crack at this, and I'll give you a brief crack at it, and then we're going to go to Germany, a country that has had major issues with immigration as well. So, okay. so go right. right ahead. Well, so, so, so uh, just to be brief, I mean, uh, Trump exists for a reason. He's found the constituency, which is not unique to the United States. It exists in Europe as well. Uh, it is the manifestation of failures in globalization, not a complete failure because globalization has delivered tremendous benefits, but it's also been uh, a, a kind of a mixed blessing, and particularly working middle class in developed countries whose wages aren't competitive globally have suffered badly, and of course in democracies they will eventually rise up. So this is why we're experiencing this today. If Hillary goes back to the same old kind of neoliberal formulas, uh, we'll be dealing with this kind of stress economically and politically for a very long time. So we have to deal with people who are dislocated, people whose wages are stagnating, increasing inequalities, and it's a system-wide phenomenon. It's happening in China. It's happening in Europe. It's happening in the United States. And so someone, and maybe Hillary's the person, uh, or maybe Hillary with, with Bernie Sanders napping at her, you know, at her heels is the person, because she has been sort of pushed a little bit left by, by Bernie, I think necessarily so. I hope, that, I hope that remains. I hope she doesn't go back to this idea that all you really have to do is open markets and generate growth and everything else falls into place because it doesn't work that way. And that dynamic might be reorienting Hillary Clinton, who's nothing if not a political pragmatist, back to a more worker-focused democratic coalition rather than the 
Wall Street-focused New Democrats. Um, this is the perfect time to go to Martin in Germany because we're having this discussion about immigration, the rise of populism here in the United States. We've already said that we have so many similarities with Europe, with France and Germany. So, Martin, I want to bring you in here and get your take. Thank you. Um, well, Germany is the industrialized country that has taken most refugees in absolute and relative numbers in the last couple of years. And the refugee question is not only in Germany uh, on the top of the agenda, it's also in all of Europe countries on the top of the agenda. And it's always uh, linked also to the economic question that you have raised. And there are always, you know, two sides of the coin. And and there are also two opposite uh, viewpoints. One say, you know, they're taking away low-paid work. They're taking away, uh, you know, low-income housing. They and, and it's a race against the ones at the bottom. This is only partly true. The data doesn't actually show that. At the beginning, there might be more competition. But over a few years, uh, this is not a question anymore. And in Germany, for example, you have a lot of Turk immigrants that you know, date back to the 60s, and uh, I often meet Turks that are very worried about the immigrants because they fear a new competition. And the other opinion is that refugees are, do contribute to the economy, and this is also only partly true because refugees are not regulated immigrants. So in Germany and in Europe, the question is that you get a, a huge influx of refugees that you have not chosen, like the Canadians choose their refugees and the Americans choose their refugees mainly, you know, after a certain uh, system. And this does not work if you have uh, an, a huge influx over a few months of, of a million people. So you have uh, the problem of, in, in Germany, for example, that a huge number of the, the refugees have not had an, a higher education. Uh, about 40% are illiterate. So this poses a huge challenge, and maybe in the long run it works out, but you can say that in the next three to five to seven years, you will have to have a lot of investment in, in the refugees to educate them, to teach them German, to, to skill them, and to find houses. So it's a huge challenge. We're going to take a short break now in just a minute and reset. You've been listening to U.S. Foreign Policy and the Next President Through the Eyes of the World on America Abroad. I'm Todd Zwillick. That's Todd Zwillick, Washington correspondent for The Takeaway, hosting our global town hall discussion, which we recorded earlier this month. If you want to weigh in on this conversation online, join us on Facebook or find us at PRI.org. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. On today's program, we're listening to our global town hall recorded earlier this month at the Green Space at WNYC in conjunction with our partners at NPR Berlin and in Cairo, Egypt. Our panelists include Robert Powell, Global Risk Manager for the Economist Intelligence Unit, NYU Professor Michael Oppenheimer, and Nina Khrushcheva, International Affairs Professor and Associate Dean of the Milano School of International Affairs at the New School. We turn back now to our host, Todd Zwillick, Washington correspondent for our partner PRI program, The Takeaway. Welcome back to U.S. Foreign Policy and the Next President Through the Eyes of the World. I'm your host, Todd Zwillick, Washington correspondent for The Takeaway. Hello again. Again, to our audiences in Cairo, Germany, and here in New York. So 
So let's go back out to our partners. I want to go back to Cairo, to our friends in Egypt who are watching this selection from abroad, and have you start off uh, our segment at the bottom of this hour with your take uh, on the world's view of our American candidates. In Egypt, we know Hillary Clinton well since uh, the days when she was uh, Secretary of State. We're not sure who is going to be better for the world and the Middle East in particular, but we have a fear from the previous uh, policies of Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, especially during the time of the Arab Spring. But Donald Trump, we have no idea what he's up to. So we're not sure which one. I mean, most Egyptians that I ask, at least in the street, would say Trump. They would choose Trump, strangely enough. But uh, he has the bravado that we as emotional Middle Eastern people would accept rather than being the Iron Lady, as you mentioned before. But I I wanted, actually, if you don't mind, if I can ask a, a question to the panelists. Go right ahead. Maybe this question is more for Michael Oppenheimer. Um, Don't you think that the resolution of the Arab-Israeli conflict is actually something that the next president should be uh, on the top of his agenda? Because that was the core of everything bad that went into this area in the last 50, 60 years. And I think the solution of this problem will uh, solve many, many others. Is this something that would be on the top of an agenda of an American president? My guess is that it will not be on the top uh, if we can accept the most likely outcome, which is Hillary Clinton. My guess is no. I mean, I I, I think that this has taken huge amounts of diplomatic investment from a, a succession of American presidents with no lasting positive results. Those efforts, I suppose you could argue, have helped to manage the conflict, in a sense, but they haven't resolved the fundamental issues. And in fact, the fundamental issues now are even more intractable than they have been previously because of the Israeli occupation of Palestinian lands and so forth. So given the long shot that a Middle East peace represents... But I don't think she'll invest very heavily in in that kind of an outcome. And one of the points I think that you're making here, if I can boil it down a little bit, is that with all of the competing interests and competing priorities that the United States finds itself dealing with, especially in the Middle East now, what's perceived as a tilt toward Iran with the Iran deal upset Saudi Arabia, managing the Saudi relationship, trying to get their help with ISIS, trying to get Iran's help with ISIS while disavowing any connection to Shiite militias. This is not an entanglement. This is a morass. And it seems like the Israel relationship, for as unstable as it can be, is the most stable thing going right now. It is, and, and, and Israeli security is as solid, if not more so, than it's been in a very long time. I mean, it enjoys military superiority. It has now improving relations with many of the Arab states who have a common interest in containing Iran. I don't see a lot of pressure here on her to do some heroic peace negotiation. Nina, you want to weigh in? I just want to say that um, I can tell you how America would start paying attention. Putin goes out tomorrow and says, I'm going to be, be peace builder between Israel and Palestine. America would jump in immediately and would start to compete with him on that subject. So, so it's possible uh, in our fantasy scenario here that maybe Vladimir Putin would want to give President Clinton 
something else to worry about if she has all these oh, other he always I think he always does I mean he he keeps her on he keeps her on her toes at all times the point I mean it may be a joke but the point is that the next president should be very aware that Putin is always around the corner lurking and looking for something that he can step in and claim his global importance because Barack Obama told him he is just a regional power and he will do anything in his power not to be that. Now, we're going to go to one of our contributors who's going to pose a question about uh, some of the rhetoric of this campaign and how people around the world watching this election might perceive how they're viewed uh, by the candidates. Hey, I'm Pamela from Nanjing Foreign Language School, um, 16 years old now. Uh, I want to ask Trump a question that uh, nowadays he is saying so much uh, fancy words towards Chinese and Mexicans and foreigners. Uh, is he trying to um, get elected or uh, he won't really want to introduce some new policies against foreigners after that? Robert Powell, one of the undercurrents of our entire discussion has been the unpredictability about what Donald Trump would really do. Her question seems to go to the point, does he mean all of these things that he says about Mexicans and Chinese and foreigners? Or is this just a way to run a three-ring circus, have some bombast, get elected, and then be a more, from their perspective, a more reasonable president? I don't think that you would get kind of an upsurge of kind of anti-foreigner activity or let alone bloody internment camps or something like that, under a Trump presidency, what you would get is hostility to foreign trade, not necessarily hostility to foreigners. Which is, which is the business case. Yeah. Which is, uh, Michael Oppenheimer, does it matter what regular observers around the world feel when they see this campaign? Um, is public perception in places like China, Japan, Colombia, we've heard... Cairo, we've heard from so many of these countries. Does it matter at all how they perceive us in our elections? I, I think it does. I mean, I, I think the election itself, and certainly the prospect of a Trump presidency, reflects rather badly on our political competence. It's one thing to have a treaty commitment, if you're a NATO member, uh, that you may test from time to time. You always, I mean, the Germans always worried during the Cold War about whether we would, in fact, come to German defense in the event that the Russians poured through the fall of the gap, et cetera, et cetera. But you have a, a kind of a basic confidence in the ability of the United States to make sensible decisions. Right? And we more or less upheld that during the Cold War and for many years after the Cold War. If you are a country who depends on the U.S. for security or depends on the U.S. for its growth because the market's so large and so open, and now you have the prospect of a presidency which is uh, non-rational, uh, impulsive, xenophobic, unpredictable, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you do. I mean, I think you start questioning uh, whether, in fact, the U.S. is a reliable source of your security going forward. Just a point to kind of follow up on what Michael was saying. In politics and generally in propaganda, perceptions are more important than facts. And these are the perceptions that we're dealing with. And it's not just Trump that the world, I think, is very concerned about. Hillary Clinton, I mean, here she's not a particularly popular candidate. She's not a particularly popular candidate around the world. She is better than Trump for many countries. But at the same time, when Hillary Clinton comes out and says, we have the morality to go and do what we do, that really rings hollow. Now, we've got one question there, three rows back. Go right ahead. Uh, hello. Um, so there's a survey that says that basically the rest of the world, except Canada, views the U.S. as one of the largest threats to world peace. So what has the U.S. been doing wrong, and what can the next president do to fix the 
Public Image of America. It's a great question. And tell us your name. Uh, James. And how old are you, James? Um, 11, almost 12. Fantastic. <laughs> Robert, we'll, we'll start with you here on, on the near end. If it's true that so many people believe the U.S. is the number one threat, and if it's true what Nina said, that perception is the most important thing, not the policy, that might leave us in a very difficult spot for the future. Perception. That's a key word. Um, it's, it's, it's the image of your country. So Barack Obama is still extremely popular around the world. Not in every country, but he is generally held in high regard. The Europeans love him. They, having this kind of person, a thoughtful, philosophic president who clearly knows different cultures, different countries, does help the perception of your country. U.S. actions may actually be contrary to what a lot of countries want, but the U.S. is a top dog. And if you have a president who does speak to the world, who does speak the language of diplomacy, it helps enormously when the U.S. president's actions might actually be contrary to what much of the world wants. I want to get one more question from our audience before we wrap up for the day. So let's wrap up our great discussion with a member of our studio audience here. Yes, I'm Al McDonald. And uh, often addressing problems in alliance with non-friends is viewed in some respects as being a weakness. And I'm uh, trying to understand if we could in the future redefine interventionism to mean maybe working with non-friends, examples, China to help contain North Korea, would it be so bad if Russia and Iran and the U.S. would somehow figure out a way to mitigate the Palestinian-Israeli situation? Would that really be a weakness on the part of the U.S., or would it be actually making the problem better with what's uh, given to us? We have a dissonance in our political culture that, um, like many countries, we, we marginalize our adversaries and our enemies, like Iran, like North Korea, like the Russians in some case. Uh, but then when a deal is made, whether it's a $400 million cash payment in exchange for some hostages or a deal that releases um, somebody held captive in Pakistan, we say, get realistic. You have to talk to your enemies. This is the real world. There's, there is a dissonance there. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, it's, a, it's a great question because it, it's the way the world is evolving. Right? We can't do it on our own. We need allies, and sometimes those allies are also sometimes adversaries. So, you know, the Iran nuclear deal grew out of a, a sanctions regime that included China and Russia. You know, the deal on chemical weapons in Iraq, as you mentioned, in Syria, as you mentioned earlier, was a, a Russian deal that was easy for Obama to accept versus uh, the alternative, which was to enforce the red line. But if the superpower relationships that are involved, U.S.-Russia, U.S.-China in particular, become more contentious, as they seem to be doing, we will find those kind of coalitions of the willing increasingly difficult. And so it's a trade-off. It's a policy trade-off. It's a conversation. And the conversation is happening as we sit here having this conversation. Uh, so there's not, nothing a priori, you know, that says never work with your adversaries. But at some point, as those adversaries become more bold and more powerful, those coalitions become much more difficult. Yeah, I think exhibit A of that cooperative approach is Iran. That's the success. Exhibit A of the disaster is exactly as Michael says, Syria. 
So they tried to work together, the US and Russia in particular, will go after terrorists. What did Russia do? It mostly just bombed the hell out of US allies in Syria because it appears, and this sound, might sound a little conspiratorial, but basically Russia's aim within Syria is just to have two fighters left, which is Assad and ISIS, and then the US and the rest of the world have no choice but to back Assad, which is kind of a horrifying um, conclusion if you consider Assad is still poison gas in his own people. So as Michael said, it really depends on the circumstances. This was very much the Obama administration's policy at the beginning with the reset and so forth. Um, and it can work. And Iran was, I mean, certainly in the economist's opinion, a phenomenal achievement. It had some flaws, but it was huge. I mean, I've been covering the Middle East since 2001. And maybe after the invasion of Iraq, this was the most significant game changer. But Syria shows where it can just go horribly wrong. And so we are in the midst of an American election where people all around the world are viewing uh, the rhetoric and the strategies in this election with a great deal of uncertainty, sort of a look into the unknown, and not simply because of Donald Trump. I think that we've established that that's certainly a big part of it, but that Hillary Clinton, for many, many people around the world, may, though she represents stability, may represent a brand of stability from a couple of years ago in American foreign policy that they were never very comfortable with. And so I think what we've learned today is that there is a great deal uh, a lot of questioning, a lot of uncertainty, maybe even fear, certainly anxiety built in to the political consciousness right now. And it's being reflected in um, the perception around the world of our elections here. And I think we've had a great discussion here. And I want to thank everyone for joining us. That'll do it for U.S. foreign policy and the next president through the eyes of the world. This has been a co-production of Public Radio International, their program America Abroad and The Takeaway. A big thank you to our panelist, Michael Oppenheimer from NYU. <laughs> Nina Khrushcheva from the New School here in New York. And Robert Powell from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Also, we want to give a special thanks to our partners at NPR Berlin and Amr Kura from Creative Arab Talent in Cairo, Egypt. And a very big thank you to you, our studio audience, especially who took the time to come out and join us today at the Green Space here at the studios of WNYC. Thank you so much. Again, our many thanks. I'm Todd Zwillick with The Takeaway. Thanks for being here. That's Todd Zwillick, Washington correspondent for The Takeaway, hosting our global town hall discussion, which we recorded earlier this month. This hour was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Yael Evan Orr, with additional production help from Susan Woosley, Svetlana Stepanova, Rupert Allman, Catherine Whelan, and Amar Kura. Our digital team was led by Jared Goyette, TJ Raphael, and Veronica Zaragovia. Audio engineering support was provided by Flan Williams and KCRW's Mario Saavedra, WNYC's Ricardo Fernandez, and NPR Berlin's William Bluecroft. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on Facebook, or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI, Public Radio International.